Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Brendan. I'm on the engineering team here at Log Rocket, and joining me today is Chris Weichel, who is CTO of Gitpod and one of the hosts of the DevX podcast. Um, I love developer tools, which I guess makes sense working at Log Rocket, and so I'm really excited to hear what you're doing at, at Gitpod and, and some of your thoughts about the developer experience. Chris, thanks for for joining us. How are you doing? Great. Thank, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Um, Maybe before we, we dive into Gitpod and, and all the nitty gritty goodness there, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, how you ended up at, at Gitpod and what attracted you to the problem you're solving there. Mm-hmm. So my name's Chris, I'm based in the north of Germany. And that is also how I ended up at, at Gitpod. I came from, uh, my previous gig was at a startup at Bosch building IoT devices. And I was looking for an authentic startup experience, like a spin out that comes out of a multi-billion business. You know, it's just not the same as five people in a room. And so I ended up joining a company called Typefox at the time, from which we then spun out Gitpod um, two years later. So that was about two years ago. And so this is how I ended up at Gitpod. Um, And uh, you were, I think, one of the first couple employees there, uh, kind of like just starting from the ground up. What was what was that sort of early days experience like, and, and what has it been like to watch the company grow over the past couple of years? Yeah, that's right. When I joined, it was basically the the second engineer on the team dedicated to to building that product, a prototype at the time. It's been really exciting. Like we started with really essentially a few people in a room, and have since grown to. 65 people spread across 22 countries um, with teams that have 16 uh, have 16 hours of time zone difference within the team, well, depending on how which order, which direction you count it. Um, so massive changes, um, but really, really exciting. So you must be, I mean, you're you're all in on distributed teams and and global scale. That must be a real challenge from a process perspective to sort of help teams with that much spread work effectively together. Is there anything you feel like you're doing that's working really well um, that sort of makes those teams effective? So I think it's getting that trade-off between async and synchronous right. So we really put a lot of emphasis on asynchronous work. And at this point, it's really turned into a superpower because it because we write so much down, onboarding folks is easier. And it also means that discussions get actually more effective. It's just more effective if you have people write down their thoughts ahead of time and then bring them in a room rather than have everyone in a room devolve into a form of groupthink and not come out the other end with any actionable conclusion. So getting that trade-off right and having people write things down and at the same time knowing when it's time to bring people in a room because there are situations, you know, your production's on fire, you got to solve that. You're not going to be writing Notion docs, right? You're going to be sitting in, in a Google Meet and you're going to be sorting this out together. So knowing when to bring people together and when to write async, that's really, it's really key. Yeah. And, and I think at LogRocket, that's something we've sort of thought about the distinction there, there too, and tried to build sort of more asynchronous processes as we've become a remote team sort of during COVID. Um, and, and I think one of the other things that's valuable there is it lets people who don't sort of already have all the context do research and read and and sort of get up to speed and contribute to something that maybe if it was just a half hour meeting in the room they 
wouldn't have enough context already in their head to sort of contribute to that conversation. Absolutely. It also makes the entire process much more inclusive. Just because we are separated across, well, time and space, you don't get these opportunistic encounters where you bump into each other on the hallway and you have a conversation, hey, you know, we're working on this and you don't get that. So by writing things down and we have a policy where pretty much all documents are open within the company. And so everyone can go and, and read up on what's happening at their own commons and become part of the conversation if they want to. And obviously as, as CTO, obviously you're playing a, a big role in sort of setting this vision for the engineering team and, and the product. What does your role look like and, and what do you sort of do day to day? Spend time it's on a, podcasts. Yeah, I spend time on podcasts. Uh, it is a wild mix, really. So I come, you know, I come sort of through the ranks, so to speak. So there is still a lot of IC in me. And at this point, it's almost an in indulgence to, to go and do that, because more often than not, it's not the most impactful thing I can do with my time. That said, uh, I do make a point to to spend at least a day per week to really get into the nitty gritty of code. Other than that, I usually start my time my day catching up with what happened in the other time zones while I was asleep, going th through Slack, emails, PRs, understanding that. And then there is a lot of um, context. So I think a good part of my role is distributing context and ensuring alignment. So making sure that you know the left hand knows what the right one is doing and then making sure that the teams who should be talking to each other are talking to each other and also not just by sort of me spending my time on bringing folks together, but also through organizational development. So a good part, I think, of of the role of the CTO, at least at Gitpod, is sort of connecting the, the technical with the organization. You cannot build technology without the people and you have to evolve both at the same time. And Getting those things connected, I think that's the, the key bit. Speaking of building a product, let's talk a little bit more about Gitpod. Um, what's the pitch? If I'm a developer, what does Gitpod let me do that's that's hard right now? And how does it fit into my team's workflow? Gitpod takes the pain out of setting up and maintaining a development environment. So before you can get to working on code, before you can get to building or fixing whatever it is you need to do, Prior to Gitpod, you would need to download a bunch of tools. You would need to sit there and wait for Yarn to download the internet. You would need to build your code, run your tests, and then you might be able to start working. And then you figure out that your VS Code extension is outdated and you got to go and update that, right? So there is all that pain that, that comes with setting up a properly working development environment. We've all seen those super outdated readmes uh, when you join a new company and you go like, ah, yeah, this doesn't work like that anymore. We, we're not doing that. Gitpod takes essentially that readme and turns that into code, which means that within literally within seconds, you can get a fully working development environment on pretty much any project that includes the tools that you need to work, that includes the tasks that you need to run. And those tasks can even be run before you open your development environment. So by the time you're ready to work, what used to take three days now takes 30 seconds. And so if if I'm a developer, sort of, I, I have my existing local dev setup, it's crusty and frustrating for, for whatever reasons. What do I, what do I have to do to get it 
running in Gitpod? Am I encapsulating this in a Docker image? Is it like more of a build spec that I write to sort of define how to build and run an environment? Like how does that setup work? Yeah, the Docker image is spot on. So that that's a good part of it. So what Gitpod will give you is essentially a container running in the cloud, quote unquote. And the a good part of that is sort of the user land that you bring, which is essentially a Docker image. And you can bring your own. You can have Gitpod build it. You can use one of the ones that we provide. On top of that, though, a good part of Gitpod is that you it's contextual. So you say you go to github.com. You op- go to a PR that you want to work on. You prefix that URL with gitpod.io slash hash. And then Gitpod knows that you want to work on this PR. So it's going to clone the code from that branch. It's going to run the tasks that are relevant to this branch because the configuration lives alongside of the code. It's going to use the right tools. Again, it's basically pulling the right Docker image. And so a good part is this combination of the of the tasks that you want to run and the Docker image that, that you want to use combined with the contextual part that GitHub brings. And so, I mean, one of the things, you know, that that's always maybe not challenging, but just like a workflow frustration with you've got a pull request review to do. You're also working on your branch locally and you have to, you know, maybe there's a database schema migration in the the pull request and you have to pull that down and and get that running, then go finish that review, go back to your code that you were working on to begin with. And it sounds like part of Gitpod's value prop is that basically it can take that problem away from you, that you can just get a local environment for a branch without disrupting whatever you're working on. That's exactly right. So Gitpod, we don't prescribe, we don't want to prescribe the IDE that you're using. One of the IDEs that we offer is VS Code in the browser. It's not the only one. And you can do this with, with any IDEs. I just choose to use VS Code in the browser. And so on any given day, I'll have 10 tabs open, each of which is an individual development environment set up for this task. And once I'm done with that task, I'll just close the tab and forget about that workspace. Right? We call those ephemeral workspaces. So you create a new one from scratch for the task that you want to work on. And afterwards, you're just going to throw it away. And you're never going to worry about that environment again. So there is no config drift. If I mess up some Git operation, chances are I'm just going to close the tab and try again. Um, and so you also don't have these context switches that you just mentioned where you would need to you know, update your local working copy and then make sure that your tools are still correct and that all other state that you need is still correct. All of that stuff just goes away. It's essentially a tab in your browser or, well, a session in VS Code on your desktop, an SSH session, JetBrains, whatever you want to use. Right, and and especially I guess for for people who aren't just writing code all day, but who are maybe in roles where, as you said, uh, getting to touch the code and and sort of get into the details is more of a luxury in your day to day. Like keeping that environment up to date gets more challenging when it's not what you're doing all the time. Um, and so that's kind of an easy way to jump into the code, see what you want to see, review something, you know, leave your thoughts, and then jump back out and know that you don't have to sort of leave that environment behind. Absolutely. So not just for the developers that really need to get into the nitty gritty and really hash things out. Also for folks, like I just want to quickly browse the code base. You know, I'm just going to open a Gitpod workspace. I'm going to search through my stuff. I have full language server support. It's a proper environment, right? So I, I can easily navigate my code. We've also seen QA people loving this. 
because if they need to reproduce something, you know, they get the same environment that developers get, and they need they don't need to faff with setting this stuff up. They're getting a link, clicking on that, and they're ready to go. So this seems really cool, really powerful. Must be really complicated behind the scenes to make this all work um, and, and to make it sort of feel seamless from the perspective of users. How does, maybe maybe at a sort of high level that we can fit into a, a podcast time length, but how does this all work behind the scenes? Like what is the, the core technologies that you're leveraging here? So the, at, at its very core, it's Kubernetes. So essentially a workspace is a Kubernetes pod and then a host of additional tech in between to make that reasonably secure and also to provide functionality that you wouldn't ordinarily find in a Kubernetes container. So within a Gitpod workspace, you can, for example, run Docker or uh, you know you can do things that you would expect to do on your local machine, like sudo app get install, something like that. So at its very core, it's uh, it's Kubernetes with, let's say, a lot of optimization sprinkled on top. And that's front-loaded by this sort of contextual understanding where we can interact with different um, code hosters like GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, where we can understand sort of what are their, what do their URL schemes look like? How do we need to interact with them to understand which context you're coming from? I guess as, as I'm thinking about you sort of describe that and, and the challenges, security seems like it must be one of the hardest things to do because like worrying about container escape is something you're you're thinking about anytime you're giving users any form of of control of containers in like a CI or, or dev environment. Um, do you have a dedicated security team? Is that something sort of all engineers at, at Gitpod work on? Like how do you approach the problem of making sure that it's not just secure sort of when you start, but it stays a secure platform on an ongoing basis? That is indeed um, a good part of what we do. So we're really on top or trying to be on top of specifically Linux kernel CVEs and sort of within the container space. And on that note, this year has not been a good year so far. <laughs> like there's been a lot going on in that space. So we're, we're just really adamant and have optimized our internal sort of deployment processes and the way we react to this to be really quick when it comes to, you know, CVE comes out, we got to fix that. And at the end, it's the individual product teams that that carry this burden. So we've very deliberately chosen not to make this a central team's responsibility because it misaligns incentives. You get into a situation where the security team basically needs to ask the product teams, hey, please, can I deploy? Or the security team becomes sort of a burden for the other teams. Ideally, you'd want to, if you had a security team, and this is a discussion every once in a while that, that we're having, you'd want to build that team so that they make it easy for the other teams to do the right thing. But that coupled that by not absolving the other teams from, hey, we have a security team. You don't need to bother with that anymore. You don't need to be on top of what's happening, right? So we very deliberately um, want to keep that within the teams also because the technology stack that the different teams work on is very different. Some live on TypeScript and Node. Others live on essentially the kernel Others live on Kubernetes, Go. So different areas to cover, hard to centralize. Yeah, it sounds honestly really similar to how people talk about DevOps teams in, in a lot of ways, right? That that those teams exist, when, when they're done well, exist to accelerate and empower 
other engineering teams versus being the just sort of rebranded analog of the like ops team that you would throw your code over the wall to. Um, and, and obviously easier, easier said than done, but, but I like that, that parallel. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to not even inadvertently sort of devolve into exactly this misalignment of incentives where suddenly you've created this one team and everyone else goes like, Hey, you know, there's a team it's called even that, like, I, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And, so it becomes that other team's problem and that other team doesn't necessarily have direct impact and is not necessarily doesn't have enough agency to actually affect the changes they need to do in order to actually solve that problem. And this that's just a frustrating situation for everyone around. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcast. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. You've built this platform, you've solved all these interesting security and, and architecture problems, um, and now you have customers trying to run their, their code and run their environments on Gitpod. Um, and there are some really exotic architectures for Git repositories and, and local development setups out there. I think at, at LogRocket, we're a little bit guilty of this with like multiple layers of emulators and, and just a whole bunch of things going on to sort of reconstruct our art production environment for developers to work on locally. Um, what are some of the sort of interesting challenges or, or problems that you've had to solve as customers have wanted to run sort of different or, or more complex or more stateful types of environments in, in Gitpod? Mm -hmm. It starts with where does my code come from? Sort of the, the monorepo versus multi-repo, I guess, uh, setup. And both of them come with come with their own set of challenges. So at Gitpod, we run essentially a monorepo. And for a monorepo, you already have the challenge that you might need multiple configurations, and then which one do you pick? For a multi-repo setup, you know, you hardly ever want to work on one repo in isolation, but you want to pull them together and you probably want to connect them with the same configuration in that case. And so for this case, very uh, just lately, we introduced multi-repo support where you can link multiple repositories and have them have them cloned into one uh, and have have a joint configuration. So like navigating the the layout of the different repositories that that's one bit that's that's challenging. The other is the duality between what do I run in production and what do I run in my development environment, and most applications nowadays don't fit on a laptop, right? They like you can you can try something like Minikube or Kind, but chances are your thirty-two gig Mac is going to burn down nonetheless. There we've seen two trends so far. One is where folks externalize this preview environment into some other service. So, for example, you run. I know, say a GKE cluster, and you just deploy into namespaces, and you have some some CI process that makes that happen, or use something like Octeto or Gardener to to set up your preview environments, and you connect to them from within Gitpod. 
and because you can provide secrets and the tools, you still get a great experience that way. So essentially, you externalize the heavy lifting into other other services. And specifically in the Kubernetes space, this is something that we've seen a lot. The alternative is use something like Docker Compose or uh, essentially a shed of shell, shell scripts that you know duct tapes Docker containers together. So essentially, Docker really is, is essential then if you want to run this within, within that workspace. And that's what we've seen used a lot as well. Yeah, and, and I guess the ability to connect to external environments also is probably very helpful for things that are data intensive, where you might have like a terabyte of test or staging data that you really don't want to try and seed into your like local Docker Compose database, uh, but you still want the flexibility of that preview environment. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen people use, for example, uh, FuseFS and, and tying in um, S3 buckets that way or using SSHFS, things like that, to, to tie in large external data sources. Yeah, so it, it, it seems like sort of from a strategic perspective that a lot of what you're doing is trying to give customers enough control over their environment where they have the flexibility to bring in these tools and, and sort of scratch their itch and, and solve these sort of really specific or, or use case sort of local problems. That's right. We're very much, like internally, the, the way we phrase that is integrate, don't dictate. Right, we there is a lot of work that's gone into making developer tools work good on essentially a laptop. So for us, a good surface here is trying to act like a laptop, and so that that's also the analogy when we try and explain Gitpod. You know, think think you want to work on something. Someone hands you a laptop that's perfectly set up for that task. Once you're done, you close the laptop and you hand it back, and then for the next task, you get another laptop that's perfectly set up. And so we want to behave like this laptop. Workspaces should act, you should be able to do whatever you want to do on them, and you should be able to integrate with whatever you want to integrate with. Yeah, I mean, as as we're talking about this, I'm, I'm feeling this, like, sense of circularity in my career, where when I started as a developer, I, like, had my one EC2 machine, and that was my sandbox, and I would SSH to that machine, and I would, you know, check out whatever branch I was working on, and that had a database connection, um, and that was terrible for a lot of reasons, and you had to update your own, you know, CentOS packages. Um, and then everything kind of came back local and, and we were doing local dev with Docker Compose on our laptops. Um, and, and that's kind of been, you know, the last few years. And now it feels like with Gitpod, with Codespaces, like there's a lot of products now that are sort of trying to take development almost back into the remote or, or sandbox world, but with an entirely new toolkit. I'm curious, do you feel like that's being driven more just by the availability of tooling? Is that being driven by the complexity of applications that now people are running and, and trying to emulate locally? Is that being driven by the changes in development teams or, or processes? Like, why, why are we seeing this trend now? I think that really depends on the perspective you're looking at this from. For one, there is the it's now possible angle. Like, uh, for example, cloud IDEs have been around for a while. You know, we all know Cloud9, for example. But they, they haven't really felt like something you want to replace your local environment with, right? And this is why they haven't seen a lot of uptake. But with the advent of VS Code or Eclipse Thea, more technology has been created to, to make something like that possible. Kubernetes also really, like, you know, good orchestration platforms are really instrumental to making things like that happen. So we're in this technological, like, 
time technology crossover sweet spot to make things like that happen. The other is we're seeing that exactly the complexity of the tooling that we need, we as developer need to use is growing. And also the tasks that development teams get is ever increasing. Like we just spoke about how we expect from our teams to also handle security to a great extent. There's also, you know, Q&A, there's docs, there is even support, there is on-call. There are so many things that we expect from developers and product teams that we need to do whatever we can to make their job easier and to be able to live up to those expectations that we place on them. And so reducing this tooling complexity is paramount. And the third category that's really interesting is there are companies who've for a long time already run their development in sort of virtualized, almost remote, if you so like, environments, specifically virtual desktop solutions, you know, Citrix and the likes. And usually you would find this in very um, regulated industries, banking, um, for example, other finance. And here we're also seeing a trend where they're trying to move away from these VDI solutions just because they don't provide a particularly good experience. And so they're, they're trying to move to something yeah, that, that is more modern, something like Gitpod. Yeah, and, and as I alluded to a couple of minutes ago, I think this is a space that's starting to get some, some heavyweight players in it, right? GitHub has code spaces, which is a, a first-party offering that hits a lot of the same notes around frictionless developer experience, remote environments. Um, what do you see as Gitpod sort of killer features or, or key differentiators that sort of set you apart from the other, the other companies in the space? Yeah, when Codespaces came along, I still remember the day when we, when we heard that, that this was going to happen. And then when it finally happened, it is actually really great validation, right? It, it validated a lot of the things that, that we have been doing before. And it was great to see a heavyweight player like Microsoft throwing the weight behind this idea. And so it also helps really educate the market and tell people, hey, this is going to be a thing, right? So in, in three or four years, if you join a company and they they go like, yeah, we're, you got to install this locally, you're going to be like, what do you mean? <laughs> Got to install this locally. It's like, imagine joining a company today and they're telling you that they're not running CI. You're like, wait, I'm supposed to build this on my machine? And it's going to be like that as well. So there's been that validation. What what differentiates us? First of all, we're, we're truly open source. So we built in the open. The company is, is very open. All our code is on GitHub. Um, we, have an ex we have an awesome community Around, around Gitpod. And so we really come from a lot of, like there's a lot of open source pedigree in the company, in the, the folks that founded the company, in the folks that have joined since. And so we, we really embrace and are proud actually to be, to be out in the open. And that really is a differentiator. Like Codespaces is this closed box. You can buy this, you can give the money, you can get a service, but you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes and you have little impact over what's going to happen. There is also the flexibility that you get with Gitpod. We don't, we don't need to sell Azure Compute. We need to sell you a service that solves your problem. And wherever you need to run this, this is where we try to run. So there's the integrate side on what can you do once you have Gitpod running, but it's also making Gitpod work for you. And so for example, Gitpod can be self-hosted. If you need to run Gitpod, say for compliance reasons, um, within your own AWS infrastructure, you can. You can take Gitpod self-hosted, you can run that there. And then also the whole thing is uh, is based on, on containers, it's based on Kubernetes, it's based on things that, that people know. 
So a contributing to it is easier, but also running it, operating it um, is is easier. And lastly, we're very happy to integrate with any IDE that that folks will want to use. We have you know we have no stake in the game, so we'll um, again it comes back to integrate, don't dictate. If you want to use Emacs, use Emacs. If you want to use JetBrains, use JetBrains. Want to use VS Code? Be my guest. Yeah, um, you you said community, which is a little bit of a, a magic word for for our podcast here. It feels like it it comes up with just about everyone we talk to, um, <laughs> and and I think that's maybe a nice segue to talk a little bit about sort of your interest in developer experience and and in sort of building developer communities. Um, you know, you're you're hosting a podcast focused on it. It's something you've talked and, and written a lot about. Uh, maybe if you could just start by telling us, you know, what is is your idea of, of what developer experience is and, and why it matters and how Gitpod is sort of tied into to that vision? Mm-hmm. So developer experience is essentially user experience for a specific role. It is the experience that you as a developer have ha- uh, when, you, when you do your job, when you do your work. And that's more than just how does that CLI feel or how many hoops do, you ne- do I need to jump through to deploy to production? All of that is part of it. But it's also how can I, how can I navigate sort of this, this landscape of tooling, the docs, the, the tutorials that sit around it? Where can I go and ask questions? And also sort of what, how am I guided through this? Like, do I need to read up on every minute detail or is there, is there a process, is there a tool that, that can guide me through getting stuff done? And this is tying this back to Gitpod. This is how Gitpod sits in there. What Gitpod does is it really lowers the barrier for people to, to become developers and to grow as developers and to enter new fields that they hadn't known before just because it removes a lot of the friction that comes from having to configure this and jumping through all those hoops before you can start with, say, a new framework. It also enables folks to become developers to whom this otherwise would have been inaccessible. So we have members in the community who started coding on essentially an Android phone connected to their TV and a Bluetooth keyboard. And the only reason they were able to actually work on this is because they could get a fairly compute, fairly powerful workspace that was running in the cloud rather than on their phone. And so to me, that's also part of developer experience is, you know, we usually think about this in a commercial context and sure that matters a lot. There's also the developer productivity aspect to this, but it's also lowering the barrier and making it accessible so that others can maybe overstressing that those two words can experience what it is like to be a developer. And I, I think there's also, you know, as, as you're thinking about that relationship between the product and the community of people who use the product and support each other, that seems like, like also a really important part of the experience is, is there, you know, a way to connect to other people who are, are having the same experience or who are, interested in solving the same types of problems. And so I know that's something that that I think you feel like you definitely have and, and you're proud of, but I'm curious how you bootstrap that. 
as a, a product? Does that come from your open source roots? Like, how do you go from, I have an idea to, I want to build a community of developers around that idea? Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when, when we started Gitpod, it was, it was closed source, basically. We had a, you know, we had our private repo, this is where it sat in. We had, um, uh, we had basically GitHub issues that, that you could comment on. And there was some, some traffic in there that was happening. What really kicked it off is when, when it all became open source about three years ago. Um, all of this, you know, got out in the open. We made that very deliberate decision. We want to be out in the open. Um, we also want to not just share our code, but we also want to share the way we talk and think about things and want to put that in the open. And so, you know, a lot of the product discussion and prioritization and how are we going to do X and Y basically happened out in the open on, on issues like good open source project would. And I think that was a good part in sort of building the nucleus of, of a community. And then we've gone through several sort of iterations on modalities where people can connect. So we started with, uh, with a forum essentially and uh, the GitHub issues, and then now move to to Discord, where there is a lot of um, where there's a lot of conversations going on, and people just hanging out and and talking about it. And this really uh, has helped grow this, grow the community. What also helps in this case, I think, was very uh, fundamental to it is to have great people who really deeply care about building a community. And so, in our case, uh, Pauline Navas who co-hosts the DevX podcast uh, with me, she's she's really excelling at that. And it, it's, she's really, really passionate about building a community and, and making sure people feel welcome and creating avenues for people to join. And I think without having someone with that level of drive and, and passion for building that, no matter how open you are, it's going to be hard to, to rally people around and make them feel welcome. And and maybe going, reaching back to the beginning of our conversation, I think there's also something to be said about incentives, where if you make it someone's full-time job to solve this problem of bringing people together and, and thinking about the events and the modalities that that can create community and, and do experiments and try new things, that like investment from the company into its its community also you know has a big role in, in growing that it's kind of it's something that has an organic element but it doesn't just come out of nowhere that's right you can't just put a put a forum up and expect that people will will come and and be a part of this you got to make sure that that they get value out of it that they feel heard that there is that they are not just talking to an empty space um, and you also want to encourage your own folks to to join that community so a lot of Git potters are really active within our community and, and do enjoy that a lot. I think we're becoming sort of infamous for, for closing our, our podcasts with some version of this question, but it feels especially apropos because we were just talking about that sort of inflection point in, in developer experience and developer environments changing. If you sort of look ahead in your mind, you know, maybe 10 years from now, what do you think developer experiences is going to look like? How are we going to be building software? Um, nobody, nobody can hold you accountable to this prediction. I would hope so, because I'm sure to get it wrong. Um, I think what will happen is we'll see a lot more automation. We're going to see a lot more automation from like to the likes of Copilot. Mm -hmm. 
where you know sprinkle machine learning magic dust on things and uh, you get a much great much better experience we're also going to see that sort of trend of, of automation going to continue so remote dev environments i'm sure in in 10 years way before that actually will be a standard way of working what what i think is going to be interesting is how the whole no code thing is going to play out and what new forms of sort of problem and solution specification will come around and this sort of also ties back to to the machine learning side of things you know sort of the question will will the developer be obsolete at that time i personally don't think so because problem specification and also verifying solutions etc is still very very hard what i think will change a lot is or might yeah, will change is how we talk about those problems, sort of at what level of abstraction and what level of detail. And with that, to some extent, I think that it's almost going to separate into two types of development, if you so will. Like on one hand, there are those that that built those tools and sort of that that really get into the nitty gritty and understand how these things work. And then there are those that that use them. And lastly. Um, isn't there that, that saying the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that. I think there are going to be some areas where this is going to be more, where we're going to see that more than in others. So, for example, I would expect that embedded development will, will trail this compared to, say, mobile app development. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Really, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, what would you like to plug or, or point our listeners to? We actually spoke about the, the community already. I think this is what I want to plug. The Gitpod community. If you, if you try Gitpod or if you have any questions about that, if, if you want to go to talk, talk to people who really care for developer experience, there's even a developer experience channel in, in our Discord. Um, go and join those. It's awesome people. I think that's what All I'm right. playing. Well, thank you again. It was, it was great to have you on, and we'll see you online. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for listening to PodRocket. You can find us at PodRocketPod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.